So my name is Isabella and today's Intern Whisperer Tip of the Week is During the recruitment and onboarding process, ask people if they have a preference other than their legal name that they would like to be called. Encourage everyone to share their pronouns also. That's a really great idea because it helps normalize the practice and make gender expression safe in the workplace. Hi, welcome to the Intern Whisper. Our show is all about the future of work. And today's guest is Ronald, and you're going to have to help me. I know your last name is tricky here, and there's a story behind it, but let's see if I can do it. Angsy, Angsy. Yeah, that's 100% correct. You got all it. All right, I nailed it. Welcome, Ron. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you're with cash.io. We always start our show off with asking our guests to tell us five words that describe them and why. And so we did a little bit of, you know, pre-planning on this one. So I can help you out there. No worries. What would be one of your words that you would say describes you and why? Um, I'm a combination of a futurist and a skeptic. And I think that creates a healthy balance because Futurists really tend to look forward um, into the world and see what it could be in the next 10 plus year time horizon. With my background in venture capital, um, it's something that's really resonated with me. Even my personal investments, uh, being an early shareholder in Tesla in 2013, early in Bitcoin, it was around 4,000, um, early into some of my uh, private startup investments. Um, but balancing that with a skeptic, because a lot of futurists are uh, not very practical. They don't uh, see or acknowledge the challenges. And that's when a lot of great ideas fall apart is kind of in the execution or looking at the multiple perspectives of something. So you have to blend a, a healthy dose of futurism with skepticism in order to find kind of a middle path and how to tangibly realize it and manifest kind of the world around you that you envision. Mm. I think that's really a good choice of words that most people may not think that, oh, they'll say they're one or the other, but they don't find that balance. And I really like the fact that you were creating balance in there. That's really good. Nobody's done that before. So you're the first. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, you know, like when it comes to it, if you're super futuristic, you can just be like naive and overly idealistic and things don't economically work on your life like that. But if you're too much of a skeptic, you don't realize when innovation comes and hits you and disrupts you and changes your way of life. So um, having a, a bit of both um, is, is good. And that is where all the alpha is in the middle. <laughs> so, yeah. I agree with you on that one. That's for sure. So you said tenacious. Why that word? I'm a first generation college student growing up. Uh, no one ever told me what to do. Um, so I was relying on internet websites, whether that's, uh, college confidential, uh, Reddit, uh, wall street oasis, just reading a lot of opinions from people online who are smarter than me talking about various life advice and self-help and just how to navigate from one place to another. Like, cause I didn't have that in my childhood or really growing up and someone who was really gone through it before. So I had to figure it out through the community around me. Mm. Um, creative. Uh, yeah, when it uh, comes to creativity, uh, I, I think I excel the best uh, when I'm in a situation where there's a thousand ways to do something. You don't know which of the best way forward is that. Um, if you're just looking for like a really smart, you know, warden MBA to go and do something and you plug and play, you get 85% of the same output. I'm probably not that guy. If I you say follow steps one through 17, I'm going to look at 
step 14 and step eight and see if you can swap them out for each other, um, which uh, can be infuriating in uh, some work environments, but very delightful in other work environments. So just about knowing your pros and cons and seeing what environment you really fit best in. Mm, yep. I like that too. Transparent. I figured that one out about you right from the beginning when I met you uh, last week uh, through PodFest. We're going to throw a little shout out to PodFest here, but transparent. Why? Uh, yeah, I'm just a very transparent person. I started off my career in management consulting where I had to be like almost like a professional liar. <laughs> I had to put on a straight face. I had to interview people and say, no, sir, I, I, we're not going to lay you off based on what you tell me about your job. <laughs> and um, it uh, really swayed me in my personal life to go the opposite direction in practicing radical transparency. Um, so whenever I talk to people, they know where I stand on things, good and bad. I hate it when people say things behind other people's backs. And then so I always just try to be upfront and uh, people, um, at least my friends appreciate my communication style because they always know where I stand on things and the, the proverbial, how does this stress look on me question, right? <laughs> I totally agree with you. I'm very um, candid also in my conversation and direct. I describe it as that direct and very candid. So if you want me to tell you what you need to hear, come to me because I will tell you those nice. things. Yeah. Um, if it's something that you don't want to hear, then just say, okay, I'm not ready for it just yet. But I appreciate people that will tell me the truth and be honest with me, like what you're describing. So transparency, good thing for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So all of that rolls into one word that we could use to describe you communication. Yeah. Um, I realized early on that I was not the smartest person in the room. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be somebody that's smarter than that, than us. Exactly. And if you're the smartest person in the room, you should look for a new room to always constantly learn from someone. And what I realized at an early age is with power of the internet, you can really just find any information you need. But the ability to really articulate that information is incredibly important. I mean, I used to work at IBM um, with semiconductors. Then I worked in Tata Communications. Um, with a whole series of telecom, venture capital, innovative ideas. I had my own Y Combinator, a startup around biotech. So explaining like, you know, uh, clinical trial information to people. And then uh, at Humana, explaining the beast of healthcare insurance to people where I swear, I, I swear, we don't go into a daily all hands meeting in the morning and say to ourselves, hmm, how do I screw over old people today? <laughs> I swear, no, no one actually thinks that way, right? Um, so it's about how do you kind of communicate these things to people? And uh, throughout my career, I've kind of been in complex environments that have required communication to convey concepts that um, would help multiple stakeholders understand. Mm -hmm. You know, you said something that was interesting. Oh, tell old people, how are we going to screw you over? I'm paraphrasing for sure. But I did one, I didn't even make it an hour. I went, okay, I'm going to take this second job. And I was doing um, phone sales mm -hmm. and, you know, cold calling. And I realized I cannot do this. It was selling cruises to people who had no money. I, I could not do it. I said, okay, I, I can't do this. And I walked out, wasn't even there an hour. So some things you can have a really hard time with. with yeah, I, I totally agree. Everyone says, like, Ron, you should be a salesperson. 
And I'm like, like, I can't be a salesperson because I actually have to believe in what I'm selling. Like I, it doesn't actually work if you just give me a salary and say, sell this, right? I actually have to believe that it's uh, actually something as a worthwhile value proposition. So I think we're, we're similar in that way. But um, on a higher level, so many jobs, investment banking is a sales job at a higher level. Management consulting is a sales job at a higher level. And like what we do, it is communicating a message to other people, hopefully an environment that you intrinsically believe the actual value proposition or the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to push back on you on that one. So mm-hmm. salesperson, everybody is a salesperson is what I've come to realize, because how did you get your first friend? How did you get your first boyfriend or girlfriend? How did you get your first job? You have to. But the key word is just like what you said, you have to believe. And so. Are we all salesperson or are we salespeople? Yeah, and totally. About what we Everyone doing? is a salesperson, right? Yeah. In, in your personal and professional lives, um, it's just about, you know, kind of your willingness to accept it and, and the directness of it. Um, I think, I guess what I'm referring to is you get a payday salary to represent a product and then to get someone to use or buy that product right. if you disagree with that product. And I know plenty of people that if someone gives them a high salary, they will sell the product and they will sell it well. That's not who I am. <laughs> um, so I, I guess uh, it just depends on kind of the shades of gray over there. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the word sales, most of us operate that that can be like a bad word. And, and I think that's unfair to everybody that is in sales because like salespeople, because Lord knows we wouldn't have jobs if we didn't have salespeople, but on the same hand, it's being um, transparent and ethical and making sure that we're conveying what the value of a product is. And if it has no value to the person knowing, you know what, this is not a right fit. Like that's where that ethics comes in, right? You're a hundred percent right. And I think uh, when you think of these terms, it's, it's a funny thing about language. Language has so much context and nuance um, and culture embedded within the words themselves. Um, like sales, you know, you can have certain connotations to that. Or another one, a lobbying, right? Lobbying typically has negative connotation, but so much of lobbying is just um, presenting information um, about a certain topic. And again, you know, you might have different pros and cons of a certain issue, and it's just about who can kind of represent those opinions um so like yeah there there's definitely many fields that have that in it but nothing is inherently good or evil per se it's just how we use certain tools given to us yeah um, so yeah you're 100 right over there yeah we agree on that that's for sure so tell us about your educational background where'd you go to school how'd you get to where you are now as this senior vp over there at cash what's that yeah story? Um, so grad went to Indiana University undergrad. I'm a proud IU Hoosier at heart. Um, yeah. And, um, I, I'm actually wearing a Hoosier shirt. I can't tell if you can, I'm not sure if people are just watching this or are they listening to it, but yeah. You know what, Um, both, just so you know, Ronald, we have, this is actually going to be a video and it'll be on YouTube as well as on our Facebook page. But then it's also the audio file. So go Hoosiers for those that can't see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, start off my career in management consulting. Because, of course, when you don't know what you want to do with life, you do consulting. <laughs> and then uh, from there, um, I uh, did my MBA at Warden. Um, I've always kind of wanted to 
do an MBA as a first generation college student, even though financially I knew it was probably wasn't the, the best move to make, um, but really enjoyed my time there. Um, I met an 18 year old undergraduate freshman while I was doing my MBA. He had a science project, need an MBA to turn it into a serious company. I said, you know, that's cute. I can be an advisor. Uh, but the more I worked with them, the more I was like, wow, this kid's pretty remarkable. And if there's one thing I learned from consulting where I uh, lived in 17 cities in three years working with over 13 different clients is that you don't work uh, for companies, uh, you work for people. Um, and uh, the more I worked with this 18 year old kid, the more I was like, I believe in this guy. Uh, so long story short, dropped out of school, worked on the startup full time, got into Y Combinator, partnership with NASA, several major hospitals, uh, uh, raised a seven digit figure round and became over a $10 million company. Um, and then from there, I sold out of it, a pretty decent sale. Um, not enough to retire, but enough to cover student loans, which is all that I honestly cared about. <laughs> uh, so went back, graduated, um, and then did corporate VC for a while. So it was fun kind of working with startups as a, in the portfolio operations role. Worked at a big startup at Humana, uh, where it was $100 million startup initiatives, where I led product strategy for it. And I caught the crypto bug. It's a story of everyone in the crypto industry is a catch crypto bug. And uh, now I'm here as a senior VP of a publicly traded blockchain company called IntelliBridge, uh, where we offer 10% interest and discounts. So, so IntelliBridge is the corporate name, but cash is their DBA? Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the product name. It's kind of like Google and Alphabet, right? So the, the consumer product is called Cash DeFi. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So that was my next question is what is cash? And you touched on it a little bit. It's a cryptocurrency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, um, you know, when people think of blockchain, they think of like Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? right. But there's such a wider scope. And I, I know we'll get into that later in the conversation. But um, for example, if you look at decentralized finance, uh, people put money in a bank today, they as a depositor, the bank then loans it out to a borrower at a high interest rate. They give a low interest rate to the depositor and they keep all that profit in the middle to give the, the CEO, shareholders, accountants and lawyers, real estate buildings and properties. In decentralized finance, you disintermediate the bank and you have money flow between the depositors and the borrowers directly. And because there's no bank in the middle taking profits, the depositors get a much higher interest rate and the borrowers get charged a much lower interest rate. Um, so it's kind of technology and using computer algorithms as a trust system rather than a centralized entity like a JP Morgan. Um, so what our company does is we enable people to access a $30 billion decentralized finance money market uh, created from a Stanford engineering graduate backed by Coinbase, Robinhood CEO, Tiger Capital Management, and all these other uh, big entities. And we allow the little person, uh, the everyday person, your mother and your neighbor to access the exact same system uh, with Gmail, Facebook login, ACH wire transfers. This is not Bitcoin. This is not Ethereum. This is earning 10% stable interest in cash deposits, which in an era of what, 8.5% CPI reading, and that's only the official number. Uh, and official numbers for things, assets of scarcity like real estate are probably much higher than that, right? Um, the ability to get 10% interest uh, a savings account is transformative for individuals, corporations, and nonprofits alike. 
It's amazing. I mean, I'm jumping on that train too. So I will gladly do that. So you mentioned a word decentralized, and I know that you gave it a definition, but just so our listeners are like fully tuned in, decentralized, you know, you want to go ahead and refine that. But then I also have some examples that I wanted to talk about, like Capital yeah. One. They don't have a bank that you walk into, neither does USAA, you know, so do you consider those decentralized? Yeah. So uh, when I think of decentralized, I think truly peer-to-peer, like, you know, you go to a farmer's market and you buy directly from the farmer um, or, you know, um, you know, like, like certain, you know, individual activity over there. Um, disintermediation is one way to look at it, like Tesla selling cars directly to people without having a, a dealer in the middle. Um, and decentralized finance is almost like a bartering system where people, you know, loan each other money on a peer-to-peer way. Right. So that, that, that's how uh, we view uh, decentralized finance. And yes, there are certain banks like Ally Bank that has no physical retail locations. And that's why they can have a higher interest rate. Uh, but using kind of blockchain technology, you take that to a completely different level uh, because a lot of the financial ecosystem today uh, uses a really nice user interface, a really nice app like Venmo that's very user friendly but it still uses a lot of the same underlying systems in the guts in, 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 uh, in between. And uh, the, what blockchain technology does is it completely replaces that. It substitutes it out altogether. Um, and when you start with a whiteboard and a blue sky environment, you can completely rewrite the rules of the game. And then I can kind of describe how that works in decentralized finance versus in a traditional banking environment. All right. So if I want to go over to your organization and open up an account, what would that be like? Uh, yeah, you simply just go to uh, cash with a K um, dot IO. And then once you're there, it's just Gmail, Facebook login. And then uh, you, that automatically creates a decentralized finance account on the back end. Uh, and what you do is you just get a uh, uh, you get an account and routing number and everything, right? So you can just ACH your wire transfer funds over. And then once it's over, it hits an FDIC insured account. Um, so if your cash is in an actual bank. And then from there, uh, you can then choose to move it into what we call a savings account. But when you move it into a savings account in the back end, what that really does is it moves a decentralized finance. But we j- it just has a nice user interface that we just call it a savings account, right? And then from there, your money is able to earn a 10% uh, interest um, that you can withdraw or pull out at any moment um, because it goes to various uh, borrowers in a, in a multi-billion dollar borrowing pool. So uh, yeah, that, that, that's how it uh, works in a nutshell. And I can explain the actual math around 10%. Um, so if your audience wants to nerd out over that, I can. But on a high level, uh, that, that, that's how it looks. Mm-hmm. So do they, do they have a, an ATM card? Is it treated the same where they can make withdrawals? Yeah, uh, it's like a MasterCard debit card. We're actually incubated by MasterCard's accelerator program. So, um, you know, we work very closely with MasterCard. Uh, we also work with Prime Trust, which is a very, very large uh, um, entity, financial entity in the U.S. with many partner banks. Um, they work with Binance and Kraken, uh, for example. Um, and so, yeah, we, we work uh, with these entities and um, that enables you uh, to just send cash over. And then once you send cash over, um, it converts in the background into what's called a stable coin. 
And then a stable coin is then it's like programmatic cash. It's like cash, but you put smart contract computer programming logic into the cash so that it automatically gets loaned out and is automatically withdrawn back to you when you need it uh, for an ATM withdrawal in physical cash or uh, in a debit card when you want to go to a local restaurant or you want to send the money back to your Chase account. Um, you know, we can send back there that way. Mm, that sounds good. So it works apparently tandem with what people are comfortable as a brick and mortar building that they can go in there and see and still move their money around with within a cloud-based platform. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I- exactly. We would just want people to be very familiar um, and, and learn. It's almost educational, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, okay, you get 10% interest savings. Sample. Like, how does that work, right? And then I kind of have to educate you on what a stable coin is, on the difference between an FDIC insured dollar versus a digital a stable coin dollar versus like what do you have in Venmo and like just digital cash and the differences between them. And then how you get that interest rate and then how you're able to spend in real life via a MasterCard debit card, how you're able to send it back. Um, that's why we have weekly sessions every Friday, 1130 AM, where you just do open Q and A sessions with people can come ask these questions and then we can kind of walk them through it. Right. Um, so I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And, uh, the more people that we explain to you, they just kind of follow down the rabbit hole. They're like, this is amazing. I, I can't believe this works. I feel like I've, I've been ripped off my whole life because I've been growing up to believe that a sub 1% interest savings account is actually good when in real life inflation is 8.5%. You're just getting annihilated. Your, your money is yeah. melting every year in a treasury. Yeah, it sure enough is. So Venmo is owned by PayPal, right? Yes. Okay. So the other one is um, Zelle. And I find Zelle not to be as user-friendly. There used to be a way that I could access Zelle and I'd be able to set up my profile. And I don't know what's happened, but it is not, um, it doesn't connect with my bank. Well, it does, but apparently it's not connecting with my my bank account and how I have to access it is a little bit more tricky than using um, Venmo. So my preference has been Venmo for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, Zelle is created, um, and I, I, I'm from Fortune 500 land, so I, I kind of see this. Zelle is created from a combination of multiple banking partners working together, right? Mm-hmm. As a reaction um, to Venmo, which mm-hmm. was a startup that got acquired by PayPal later on. Um, and then, so like, if you look into the history and genesis of these companies and how it's like tech founder focused, um, and the engineering behind it, the end user experience, uh, makes such a big impact, right? Whether it's cash app or Zelle or, um, Venmo, or when you get into decentralized finance, like what we do is we just want to make the user interface really simple and delightful for people to use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big insight, especially if you want like your mother to use it or your neighbor to use it. Right. Um, accessibility is, is such a, a big thing uh, to overcome. Mm-hmm. So do you see that you're going to have to um, bring this into, I don't know, educational institutions where we're talking about how money is moved and and um, yeah. kept in a different so, way than traditional textbooks. Yeah, um, I uh, firmly believe that every classroom um, in elementary school in America should learn about uh, financial literacy. I heard that Florida recently enacted it. So congratulations, Florida. 
Um, I think every child should learn about the concept of compound interest. And uh, these things really do add up over time. We have a little compound interest calculator on our homepage just to show people the differences in, in a 10% interest savings account. Um, so these are all important concepts. And, and um, you know, it, I, I think it is through educational enlightenment that people learn to trust new technologies. Like I remember when I was a Tesla investor in 2013, and people were like, oh, electric cars, they're made of batteries. Don't they catch on fire and blow up? <laughs> and then it was like, no, if you actually look at the statistics, the fire rates for electric uh, vehicles is like one one hundredth, two orders of magnitude away from a traditional ICE vehicle. But the moment any Tesla car catches on fire, it's on CNBC, right? So just people just logically think it's more uh, dangerous. So when you look into decentralized finance, you're like, wow. Uh, programmatic cash being sent to a giant borrowing pool, that sounds incredibly risky, right? And then that's where I, I like to say, like, sir, do you know that when you put $1,000 into your local bank, they actually loan out $10,000 fractional reserve lending? Or that uh, when, uh, you know, banks typically have like, you know, 1% or even less in reserves in the bank at any given time, but they're able to get away with that because they have FDIC insurance. And that allows them to take all this risky behavior uh, versus in, um, you know, like a crypto land where if you put cash in, when you take a cap out a cash loan, your collateral is over collateralized. So you need like $200 or $300 worth of collateral in order to get a hundred dollar loan. And because it's computer algorithms, the moment your collateral value falls to like 150, you're automatically liquidated. It is actually mathematically impossible for a depositor to lose their initial funds. So like, um, and, and, and uh, just uh, like for, I'll give you another example of a concept, sorry for nerding out. But like, if you have a liquidation scenario in a home mortgage, how long does it take for the bank to unwind the house and sell the house? Multiple months, right? In a foreclosure environment. In a decentralized finance environment, when you get margin called and you get liquidated, that happens instantaneously in a fraction of a second, 24 seven automatically without human intervention. So it actually de protects depositor um, money significantly more than a traditional banking institution does. Wow, that is a uh, really good news. Now, I don't know when that this type of knowledge is gonna be migrating through the public school system or just schools in general, because I, I don't think it's going to happen, honestly, very fast. I mean, it's education and government are very slow moving creatures, you know, mm -hmm. with uh, doing anything that's significant, like what we're talking about here. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it will definitely be social media. It will unfortunately be like a lot of the TikTok influencers, which are not good people for the most part. Um, and, but, you know, we saw that the younger generation really picked up on the internet incredibly quickly, right? Yeah. And how they do things digitally. Um, and I think for blockchain adoption, uh, the younger generations of people will pick up on that quickly. Oh, I think so. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And we have seen data of that and how ubiquitous it's become. Um, so it'll be interesting to track those trends and how those trends change over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the time to be a research person in, in this <laughs> and like how things are happening. So digital assets and bracelets, what are those? Those are not necessarily jewelry when we talk about bracelets. I Now, I am a newbie to this, to be honest, so I don't have 
definitely not the depth of knowledge that you have. But I did join um, one of the Discord uh, groups that's specifically dealing with blockchain and then also with... Yeah. Uh, I mean, so when you look at anything, what's the difference between a China knockoff bag versus, you know, a Louis Vuitton bag that right. is real? What if the actual knockoff bag comes from the same manufacturing plant as a Louis Vuitton bag, but they just took off the logo, right? The difference in all three of those scenarios is kind of the societal value and the perception of it in the brand, right? And that is verifiable through, I guess, looking at the bag and then kind of, you know, understanding or knowing who wears it in the context environment. Blockchain technology is very similar and it's just digital proof of ownership, proof of scarcity, proof of an in-group. I mean, yes, anyone can look at a picture of an NFT, copy, paste it on their computer, right? But you right. can do the same thing for the Mona Lisa. That doesn't make it the Mona Lisa. There's only one Mona Lisa, right? right. So when it comes to uh, an NFT, whether it's a digital bracelet or a painting or just, um, you know, some element there, it is blockchain. All blockchain means it's like something, whether it's a transaction or it's a receipt, it is copy and pasted on multiple thousands of computers. So it is undeniable who owns it or how the transaction occurred, right? It's just incredible proof, right? So it's incredible proof that something of value truly belongs to you. Now, in certain environments like digital ownership or like, for example, tickets to basketball games, that can be purely manifested digitally. So like that is something where it clearly makes sense to use blockchain technology. The moment you get into real life where there's like an actual real life painting and it's associated with an online proof of ownership or like supply chain, it gets a little more tricky because you're interspersing real life versus digital domain. But uh, we'll, we'll see blockchain in the years to come uh, kind of branch itself out uh, to more areas. Um, but that original use case with NFTs is really just proof of ownership. The way you have a really cool Ronald at gmail.com account, or you have love.com as a URL domain that you mm -hmm. own. It's just an extension of that concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we're looking at what the historical, how money or the concept of, of money has changed is go way back to, you know, dinosaurs. Well, there was no cash. There was nothing like gold and things like that. So it was used with like pelts, right? And, yeah. and it could be the food that you made and it could be tools that you created. So something that was useful um, and that could help them people survive. And so over time, things like that have changed so that that's not how we trade anymore for something. We trade like you said, money has a perception of having value. And so what became easier to, to take along with it was paper and coins, right? But now everything has been moved into a more of a virtual world, a digital world, maybe not virtual, but digital world, so that we don't have to carry that with us. It's accessible through our phones or through our devices. Exactly. Um, what is money than just numbers on a database somewhere, right? Um, and uh, what you can do with it. Um, so you're 100% right. Um, I, I like to say, you know, like money is belief, whether it's in belief in our government's gross domestic product, belief in our government's nuclear weapon arsenal, uh, belief in, you know, the objects that we can buy and the debt that we can uh, accrue, um, the loans we have through it. it it's all belief. 
Um, and uh, what you see with cryptocurrency, it is a challenging of that belief uh, because it is the moment you digitize money the way we have so far, it's so easy to create more money, right? Uh, to add another few numbers to a database somewhere. And that does have long lasting consequence and impact um, for everyday people who are trying to be fiscally responsible, but you have others that are just, you know, uh, creating money out of thin air and it's diluting everyone else's money, right? Mm -hmm. um, so blockchain is the very first time in the history of mankind that we're not reliant on a central government or authority entity to hold that power where we can create that power ourselves. That's what Bitcoin is trying to do. Um, and that's one of many applications of cryptocurrency. Mm. So this would be money that is universal to everybody all over the world. When we're talking about Bitcoin, it's like this has the same value in China as it does in the Ukraine, as it does here. Uh, yeah, you know, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, right? <laughs> that's uh, the famous saying. And, um, you know, how that evolves some um, in the future, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, when people say, oh, why don't you just copy and paste the Bitcoin code, right? You can copy paste the Bitcoin code, but you, can you copy paste the Bitcoin belief and all the institutions that hold it and all the corporations that build support structures around it and everything, right? Litecoin is a copy of Bitcoin. Um, Nano is a copy of Bitcoin with actually technological upgrades to it. But um, they're not Bitcoin because money is a function of belief. And that is such a powerful thing coming from me and my background in marketing and how people choose to value anything, right? Um, so it'll be interesting to see um, how that evolves. With that said, it's, we're still so early on. Bitcoin does not trade like a store of value today. Bitcoin trades like a super high beta volatile tech stock. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll see how it evolves, but it's, a, it's an interesting experiment to follow. Hmm. Well, we're going to take a moment and acknowledge our sponsor and we'll be right back. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And we are back to the second half of our show. We talk about the future of jobs and industries moving into 2030. You know, that's not that far away. That's really only like eight years. And here we are in April, so we could even venture to say seven if we don't even count this year so it's really hard because two years ago a little more than two years ago nobody thought the world would have changed overnight like how it did and so here we are you know people stopped essentially they stopped working they stopped doing a lot of things that we all took for granted like how we grocery shopped and how we got food and where we would go you know for entertainment right so many things we took for granted. COVID has had a huge impact on business, but as we're talking about decentralized banking, what do you think that's going to look like going into, there's no right or wrong answer <clears throat> to be clear. As so I'm, yeah, I, 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 don't, I try not to think in an absolutist black and white environment. No. I try to think in terms of Bayesian probability, 30% chance of this, 5% chance of this, you know, 50% chance of this, right? That's not um, yeah. Uh, so when, when, when you look into 
how people view finances, right? And, and savings. Um, I think you're going, uh, you're already seeing right now a dissemination of information at a much higher velocity um, than historically in the past. Um, I, I love using Tesla as an example in the investor community because you literally have, um, you know, people who are truckers in the background saying, I see this transportation, this raw material, I know the rate that it's coming in. Someone else to fly a drone over a shipping port and saying, all right, here's where all the cars are being sent. Another person looks at that video footage, manually counts every car being loaded in the shipping port. And then another person looking at the shipping port at that ship and then tracking the GPS manifest as it crosses from one content to another. And another person who were in the lands translates it from Mandarin back to English and says that these are going to be delivered in time for the quarterly earnings report. And they nail uh, deliveries for class. They nail earnings per share. Uh, they crowdsource information and get more accurate information than Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or anyone on the street. Because you literally have thousands of people working together on this thing, right? And that's the beauty of information dissemination nowadays with the internet and crowdsourcing and how people view money um, and their investment decisions as a result of that are definitely going to be changing in the future. Um, so it will be interesting to see all the different ways people put investment allocations and the diversification of that across different asset classes. But what you'll see is uh, I, I suspect a higher velocity of turnover in how people are doing different things rather than the 60-40 stock to bond portfolio ratio that has historically been in place, right? And how that manifests itself will be very different and will change more rapidly over time. Mm. That's, an, that's an awful lot that's going on in that time. But I like the example that you gave us because it was very specific as to how we could see everything moving from a digital world, you know, and seeing something that's physically, you know, as it moves across, whether it's from a loading dock into, you know, mm -hmm. one area of the world into the other and keeping track of things through that method. That was a good example. Uh, because again, people may not, it's... They believe in what they see, not what they don't see, which is really surprising because you don't see air, right? But yet we know yeah. it exists. Historically, this information has been reserved to the smallest of leaders of crowds. A private equity firm would pay someone $500 for a 30-minute phone call to ask them about how shipping ports work and like the different transportation schedules. But now with the internet, you have people from all its environments collectively working together on these things, right? And uh, while, yes, there can be negative repercussions of that with echo chambers and what we saw with uh, GameStop and AMC and some things like that, um, it can also work very positively in when uh, disinformation comes out, how rapidly it can be uh, exterminated based on like how strong the community is. And that's why for, I think, anything in the future, the future of marketing, is really going to be through the growth of community, uh, whether it's in podcasting or other forms of media or in investing. Um, community is such a powerful element for anything to really grow. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned podcasting, and that is how we got connected is because of the upcoming PodFest. Do you guys yeah. have a podcast? And I think you mentioned that you're a sponsor. Yeah, uh, so uh, we're going to be at PodFest. Um, outside of that, we have our own YouTube channel where we cover on-chain analysis. 
um, on a weekly basis. And uh, for us, kind of um, our marketing strategy is to let everyone know that we're uh, the adults in the room, that we perform the research, that um, I'm awarded an MBA, YC background, former VC, or a CEO as a Georgetown graduate, former banking VP, and a U.S. State Department researcher, that we put these uh, thought leadership together, ultimately so people can trust us with their kids, you know, college uh, tuition fund or their own personal retirement fund. So we do research on a regular basis, um, one of which um, is a crypto research uh, project we're doing with the Warden um, Innovation Institute that is going to be published at the end of this month on, on crypto insurance compared to FDIC. Where are they going to publish that? Uh, we're going to publish that on our site. There's going to be a news release on it. So okay. you're going to see, yeah, an Ivy League institution working on stress test data simulation because insurance is such a big pop, uh, top hot topic for people in deposits and is my money safe, right? So um, you publish so yeah. it though. You said that you're going to publish the press release, but is the article accessible? Yes, the, the research paper is 100% free for everyone to read and consume. So um, download it? Yeah, anyone can download the PDF. Um, it will be public for all. And again, we're partnering with an Ivy League institution for that research. Um, and the amount of data and the neutral good and bad opinions that they have, I'm really excited to kind of see what the outputs of that will be. And uh, for example, we also do on-chain analysis. It's one of my favorite topics in blockchain tech, the transparency of it compared to the traditional financial markets. Are you familiar with on-chain analysis by any chance? No, I am not. Please. So. Like basically, because every transaction is on the blockchain, you actually know what everyone individually does on the blockchain since the history of time, right? Yeah. So for example, what's interesting about that is if Bitcoin falls 30% in a week, you can do on-chain analysis and analyze every single Bitcoin wallet holder to see that all the people who in the world who've held Bitcoin less than six months, maybe 87.2% of them sold some Bitcoin over this week. Mm -hmm. But those who've held Bitcoin more than three years 98.4% did not sell any Bitcoin, even though the price went down 30% this week. So you can say that the only people who sold Bitcoin were the ones who've only had it recently. The weak hands, we like to call them, right? Another example is you could see one wallet address that has $20 billion worth of Bitcoin. Maybe they sell off $1 billion of Bitcoin instantaneously. By doing that, they crash the price of Bitcoin from 45,000 to 40,000. And they did a, a billion dollars because they know if they do that market sell with uh, the bid ask spread, it will knock it off exactly to 40K. The moment it hits 40K, you can see that, you know, 39,000 wallet addresses have sell orders at 40K. So it causes automatic cascading liquidations from 40K down to like 36K. And then you see that that one specific Bitcoin wallet address that sold a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin rebought the same billion dollars of Bitcoin at 36K 24 hours later. So they effectively manipulated the entire market. And with on-chain analysis, you can see individual wallet holders do those things real time versus in the stock market, you get quarterly filings of what a current hedge funds hold after what they've done for an entire quarter. It's not super okay. useful. So yeah. Bringing up something that's, that's mm -hmm. really important, regulation. How is this... Is it regulated? How is it regulated? Is it going to be regulated? Because yeah. that's what has happened. Regulation is definitely important. 
Um, but smart regulation is important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, there was someone on one of the largest NFT marketplaces in the world, OpenSea. He bought NFTs and listed it on the front page afterwards and jacked up its value, then sold it then. That's terrible. That guy definitely needs to go to jail, right? Right. Um, but the SEC right now is going after like Coinbase, who is actively trying to follow the law. BlockFi, who came to the SEC asking for help on regulation, then the SEC prosecutes them and forces a hundred million dollar fine. And like, 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 there's smart regulation. But it's regulation. If that's what you're going to do for the people who are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of lobbying money. What about everyone else who doesn't have that budget? They're going to just try to skirt and avoid you or relocate themselves outside the United States. The thing is, the the, te- the tech world in the U.S. is so amazing. And that's where so much of our growth and GDP growth comes from. That's because the U.S. just let it grow like a weed, right? Um, and what's the biggest tech company in Europe? Like SAP? What? Stripe? Maybe? So like um, when it comes to that, uh, the U.S. truly dominates tech. But if you look into blockchain, because there is something to potentially lose as a reserve currency status of the world, you see hesitancy in the U.S. in regulation. And that's why some of the top cryptocurrency protocols are not in the U.S. Aave is in Europe. Um, Terra blockchain is in South Korea. Polygon is in India. Some of the top blockchain companies in the world are not in the U.S. now. And so that is a geopolitical problem. I think the U.S. needs to rectify. There needs to be regulation, but smart regulation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot that I we're we're reinventing how we are going to um, carry money, carry debt. You know, is, is everybody going to come globally come to the table with how we're going to treat this? I. I don't know how it's going to play into effect into political. I'm going to call it warfare. <laughs> Just yeah. yeah, geopolitical affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, because you know, I can see when you were mentioning like these fines. I'm sitting here going, okay, so there's has to be these back room conversations that are going on where something's happening, and you know they didn't know they're this one company that you mentioned, they're playing by the rules. And how much was that fine? hundred million dollars to block five. So it's like, well, they were playing by the rules, but yet somebody else gets away with it. So like what's going on that's behind the scene conversations is, is just kind of how I feel. I don't know. I follow some of that Um, conspiracy thinking though. Yeah. I will say not everyone is bad. Like if you look at the sec, uh, Commissioner uh, Commissioner Hester is um, really good. She's very thoughtful in her opinions on crypto regulation. Other people, um, not as much so. And I'm not going to try to, you know, be a back chair uh, psychologist and try to guess why the SEC is kind of prosecuting the cases they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I will say is the crypto industry would love it if the SEC went after scams. If it went after like people taking advantage of the system to personally enrich themselves, mm-hmm. if they went after abusing small individual um, retail folks, but it seems from what we've seen publicly, a lot of what the SEC has gone after has been a lot of the legitimate entities that are trying to do things right. And that's really unfortunate. Um, in what I can see, 
from an investor standpoint, I try to invest in some blockchain projects. We're like, oh, you're in the United States. We, we don't allow any investors from the US. And I'm like, no, <laughs> That's, that makes me so sad. Uh, so like uh, the, the repercussions and effects that it has is unfortunate. And like a lot of crypto companies can't even operate in New York. And like, what's that doing um, to, to their environment? Um, Miami's certainly taking advantage of it. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that environment evolves over time. Mm, yeah. So how does this, what is web three? Let's move into this. Yeah. Right. Web two. Um, okay. Well, if you were looking at original web, it's, we need a lot of people to go to our website. If we, a lot of people go to our website, we put advertisements, 1% of people will click on the advertisements and then 30% of those people will buy the stuff. And then, you know, we make some profit off of there. So the incentivization model was to get as many eyeballs to read something as possible, which is why you have outrageous headlines on everything, right? Mm. And echo chambers of people just trying to hoard a bunch of people to have like in-group thinking, right? And so that's kind of a repercussion of advertising-driven business model. In Web3, you're moving to a token-based business model where if you are the first, you know, uh, listeners of a podcast, the first 10 episodes of a podcast, um, you get a podcast token, right? And then with this podcast token over here, um, you know, like it, it, it gives you certain properties, like maybe you can redeem 10 podcast token in order to meet your podcast host, or you can submit your questions to a mailbag and it goes to a private mailbag where you definitely going to get your questions right on the internet, right? Oh. Um, or, or other value. Or you could resell, and then so some people value that podcast token. So they will buy that podcast token from you for cash in the future. And now you only get the podcast token. Maybe you get 100 of them for listening for certain episodes. Then the next 10 episodes, you only get 50 podcast tokens. The next 10, next 100 episodes, you only get one podcast token for listening. So it rewards the people who are early adopters of a certain platform. Mm. And then it, it imbues value in that token. And that token, um, you could call it a baseball card, you could call it a pog or whatever, right? We just kind of call it a token. That token has value based on the, how the community grows and um, how the content creator or the organization embeds it with value, whether it's like a lifetime ticket or a, a mailbag exclusive invite or even a trip to see the podcast host or whatever, or getting a percentage of the advertising income that comes into the podcast and we get a dividend from it, right? Uh, so like the, 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 there's all sorts of properties that can come from the token and the web three world due to blockchain technology. With a, let, let us remember, the only point of blockchain technology is to make a thousand copies of a transaction. Therefore, everyone knows who actually owns it. So that enables that where we truly know who owns the podcast token, right? And the podcast token itself, it has a lot of creative latitude for how values um, embedded it within it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, you know, back in the day when I was teaching middle school, I had this as a conversation with you before we, uh, you know, like yeah. last week when we were chatting. It's a fun story. Yeah. I, I took this workshop and it was how to bring economic thinking into the classroom. I was teaching seventh grade and I'm going, okay, it's English. Most students do not like having to write or read in school, which is so funny to me. 
but <coughs> so we're doing this whole concept in this workshop, this teacher's workshop. And so what I decided I was going to do is create play money, just like what we're talking about. Here's this, this Johnston bucks, you know, it's Johnston money. And so I, to get the students to change a behavior, I said, if you come to class and you're seated before the bell rings, you get to have, you know, a Johnston buck. And if you also go and have something to write with, because I taught in the projects, you know, they, it, it was tough. So if you come with something to write with and something to write on, you get two bucks. If you do not bother your people, <laughs> the people around you, because they like to push the chairs and, you know, irritate the people around them, their, their fellow classmates, they could get money. If they caught me making a mistake when I'm writing something on the board, they could get money. At the end of the week was banking day. And so on banking day, they could go and buy a pass to be the first one in the lunch line. They could buy a pass to be first one on the school bus, the things that had real value to them. They could also use it to buy something like giant movie cutouts that I got. All of this stuff was for free. And I went, how do I do something for free and create value in the classroom? So the students started, you know, using it and they could also save it up and they could take any one bad quiz that was an F and turn it into an A. Now that was not probably the best way because it's like, how did you have to actually, you know, you're buying a grade. But my argument back was no, because they had to learn how to save money and they had to be able to be patient. And they also had to have a lot of A's to be able to make that other bad F. It took two A's to make one F become a C. So it was hard. It was hard work. So it was encouraged them, encouraging them to actually study and then also to yeah. value in education. Long story short, short yeah. is that the money got street value. They were buying it from each other. That was crazy to me. I went, oh my God, they're really like, there's real value in this money because they wanted to be able to come in at the end of the week and have a lot more play dollars and it looked like monopoly money that was the yeah thing. And, and then you know if you have the ability to turn a, a quiz from a f to a c uh, i can see why it has street value <laughs> well, but i did let them also go and take their tests or quizzes over again it was the same quiz but they had to come in next day yeah. they needed to be and i would take their best grade and they honestly they weren't cheating <laughs> yeah. so th that that johnston book is a token right yeah. The only difference is if you gave it to Harry, but Sally wanted to redeem it. And then, you know, Harry said, Sally stole it from me. Sally said, I bought it fair and square from Harry. You wouldn't know what to do in a he said, she said environment. But with blockchain technology, it is recorded that Harry actually sold it to Sally. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone, because of that, it gives it so much more value for real world consequential actions that's all blockchain technology is mm -hmm. it's just making sure that everyone agrees on the, on the same story the history of transactions right yeah so we've been meeting, every single thing yeah, that's happening exactly so we, we, we've been working with tokenization and johnston bucks and everything uh, for a long time even longer than money has been around it's just that with the technology of blockchain it is now able to have so much more creative applications with. And because of that, now your mind expands, whether it's making a grade from an F to a C, or if you collect enough of that, you get to go to Disneyland or a day off school or whatever. It is up to the content creator or the organization that issues the token to create value into it. And that value creation into it leads to all sorts of, 
you know, experimentation and that will be fun. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, how the SEC classifies all those as securities or not securities in the future. <laughs> so, yeah. right. Well, it's so hard to believe, but, you know, we've come to the end of our show. And typically what I ask is what is the best mentoring advice that you would like to pass on to our listeners? People um, listen all uh, yeah, the way to this place. I, 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 my, my best advice is to always gather a collection of opinions I love reading Reddit posts. I love reading blog posts. Um, but more than the actual post itself, I love reading the comment section. I love reading the disagreement. I love the back and forth. And then it is through that open, transparent, public back and forth that people can form their own opinions on something rather than rely on a single influencer or a single voice um, that they just blindlessly follow. So um, always challenge your thoughts and, and have a community-driven approach. And the, the collective wisdom of a lot of people is much smarter than any one individual. Mm, I agree. How can people contact you? Now, we're always sharing the LinkedIn profile, but how will people find you? Uh, they can email me, ronald at cash.io. That's cash with a K, dot I-O. Um, reach out to me um, for any business or personal inquiry happy just to teach decentralized finance workshops in general. I just talk people through it for dinner parties or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, just like, I I'm really excited about our, what our company is doing and that I literally think everyone's family members and their friends could benefit from a 10% interest savings account. I want every nonprofit in the world to be a customer of ours, right? I want every small business with a restaurant struggling to make ends meet to be a customer of our, ours because that 10%, makes such a big impact um, compared to how you normally get it. Um, that is just really, it frees you from inflation, uh, helps you find your financial freedom. And I'm, 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 I find a lot of intrinsic value and meaning to being a part of this, to being on these podcasts like yours and explaining these concepts to really help people open their eyes up to what the world can really be. Mm, well, I really love that. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. I just, I cannot begin to tell you, this was amazing. We've not touched on this topic and I'm looking forward to having other people come back. Is this what you're going to be speaking about at PodFest? Um, I, uh, I'm going to be walking around podcasts, giving people free money, free dollar bills. Ooh, I'm going to be there. <laughs> so uh, if you find me, I'll, I'll give you some money. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, but happy to talk about this with anyone, anytime, in any environment. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ronald, for being on the show. All right. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to our production team and video interns, Christian Flowers and Daniel Conti. Music is by Sophie Lloyd, and our sound engineer is Eric Peterson. Please visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while upskilling your people for the future of work. Thank you for listening to The Interim Whisper and follow us on your favorite podcast channels.